Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Take yeah, it, John. Into boxes and lines <laughs> where you find your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I told you it was bad. Oh, just but go with it. So yeah, our special go. guest today, and as a very special guest, is Barry Ritholtz, is the very co-founder, special. chairman, chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, a financial planning and asset management firm. However, you probably more know him to our listeners. He created one of the first market blogs, The Big Picture, which he still publishes daily. Um, he has been called one of the 25 most dangerous people in financial media. That's going to be our first question, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. And has been a regular contributor to both Bloomberg Opinion and The Washington Post. And his much-loved Bloomberg podcast, Masters in Business, puts us to shame. He's recently had his 500th episode and has over 600 million listeners. We're close. We're close. No, no, six, yeah. six million, six not million. 600 million. Did I say 600 million? You said oh. 600, but six sorry, million sorry, is Barry. still Six million is still impressive. Six million is very impressive. I don't it's know where that number comes as- from. I, I, <laughs> I know we do between like 250 and 500,000 downloads a week. I assume it's a lot of the same people. So who knows if it's really six million? Could be less. Could well, be the more. important thing, Barry, is we need your advice on how we can monetize this <laughs> yes. fucking yeah. podcast. That's yeah. really right. what it's yeah. about at this point yeah. for us. Is we need to. <laughs> we'll, we'll, the we'll, secret we'll, is to attach <laughs> yourself to a wildly profitable data services company. Uh-huh. There that's you go. my <laughs> secret. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we need to work for Bloomberg. Yes. basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> we'll, okay. we'll hit Bloomberg right. and see yeah. what they want to mm-hmm. do. All but right. um, Barry, welcome and. Thank Thank you very much for joining us. We obviously appreciate it, and I know you have more podcast prowess than us, but thanks for joining ours. And it wasn't one of the questions, but I figured in the intro, you've been called one of the 25 most dangerous people in financial media. Is that a question you can answer first? or should- <laughs> Yeah. Why? T- How did you get that reputation? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, real, uh, uh, can I curse on this podcast? Oh, we- God, yes. Oh, yeah. It's almost, almost mandatory. Because mine, I have FCC rules to, so I can't say no, no, we certain can. things. No, 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 no. But we're it's we're from- actually labeled explicit. Right. Yeah, so, so yeah. I... I Early on, no fucks left to give, basically. Mm-hmm. When <laughs> when I know other people are a little more politically genteel and are afraid of offending people, but, mm-hmm. you know, the most of what I do has been pushed back to being annoyed at how other people are doing things. And so when the Wall Street Journal gets seasonality wrong in home sales— no, the housing market in 07 wasn't improving from January to February to March to April. That's just the low point is December, January, and it peaks in July, August because people want to be in their new school district before school starts in September. Mm-hmm. That's how it is every year. You just look at it year over year instead. So it, my frustration led me to do a blog post about that. And the same thing with, with the podcast was – I would watch somebody ask the same dumb questions. What's your favorite stock pick? When's the Fed going to fill in the blank cut, raise? Where's the Dow going to be in in a year? And those answers have a shelf life of about 30 seconds after the guest walks out of the studio. So it was really just frustration. And I think dangerous in terms of, hey, this is bullshit. Don't listen to this. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. People, uh, I, I mean... People think that's dangerous. I guess if you're 
<laughs> you get paid based on spreading manure around. Well, someone who calls out bullshit is <laughs> is dangerous to you. Well, we just got three last questions to ask you, so um, we've got to mix them up on the fly. I'm only joking. Those were not our questions. What? You're confused, aren't you? I am. I'm He's talking about confused. the questions people ask, like, oh. what's the Dow next year? Yeah. Right. I was uh, intimating that that was a question we had from. Oh, Wake the okay. Fuck up, All right. Dog. Well, that's very funny. <laughs> okay. That's a good one, Ronan. You can right. clean that up in post. No one will. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, that's what we always say, and then we never do. <laughs> yeah, we, we uh, generally listen to it and then yeah. like how it sounds and say, let it fly. It's like, sounds authentic, <laughs> right? It sounds like it's good. Uh, we absolutely do. Well, you obviously have connected with, um, some people may find it um, dangerous, but obviously a lot of people are hungry for people who are willing to communicate the unvarnished truth, or at least what they see um, as the unvarnished truth. And um, I think, just think people are tired of, of spin. And, um, but everywhere, just, it's, not just, it's not just markets, it's politics. And, you know, coming from a background where I wasn't paid on a commission, I wasn't paid um, on, on an asset under management fee, or at least that's most of the, other than the prior 10 years, where we're fee-based, uh, I, I was just always a salaried researcher, or at least for most of my finance career. I felt it was easy to say, hey, you're hearing this, just follow the money. F- figure out how people get paid for saying what they're saying. Very often, there's an inherent bias because they're talking their book. There's nothing wrong with that. You just have to be honest and say, this is my livelihood and here's what I believe. Surprisingly, there's a huge overlap that if you get paid for it, you tend to believe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. for, for sure. Well, the, the, your path to getting where you are is really interesting and kind of circuitous. So you, so you originally studied math and then also went to law school. Did you ever practice law? Yeah. I, so I started out uh, applied mathematics and physics, was going to go into engineering. And, and Oh, how cool. Did you? By the way, did you see, have you seen Oppenheimer? We just, it's I just on my list. We're it. supposed to see okay. it uh, yeah. this week, yeah. so it I'm good? excited about it's, it. I, I thought it was uh, All right, I'm going to go check yeah. it out. Everyone yeah. says it's good. Yeah. It looks great, and, you know, Nolan is a great director, and yeah. it's, it's a killer cast. Yeah. But um, I figured out by the third, uh, maybe the second year of college, I'm like, I'm pretty good at this, but... Those guys are great, and I'll never keep up with them. <laughs> yeah. So switched to political science and philosophy. Didn't know what to do with myself. Ended up going to law school just like, well, I've always been interested in organizing um, mm-hmm. rational thought process that way. Maybe law school will help. Um, I loved law school. Law review, cum laude, all that fun stuff. Got out and found the practice of law was tedious and boring and just focused on the minutiae. For a guy whose blog is called The Big Picture, like the small details are not where my expertise lay. And um, a buddy who I had done some legal work for, I practiced law for a couple of years. Uh, I had done legal work for a buddy who was running the predecessor trading operation for a company that eventually became E-Trade. And he said, you're, you're good with math and computers. Why don't you come look at trading? And so I started working with him. And, you know, there's not – no in the mid-'90s, there was not so much training as throw everybody in the deep end of the pool. Whoever doesn't drown, congratulations, you're a trader. And so I did that for a couple of years, and, and it was really fascinating. I, I liked it maybe a little too much because <laughs> at a certain point you realize you're trading for the visceral thrill, for the uh, dopamine rush, not for pure P&L. 
the guys who eventually went on and had professional careers learned how to manage that as well as a whole bunch of other behavioral issues, which uh, was was really the key to success as a trader. Nice. Le- leads to the next question, because um, you were one of the earliest traders to embrace behavioral economics. Can you tell our listeners what, what that even means, to be honest, and sure. why it was I so mean, formative to your trading? It, it was absolutely just out of frustration watching uh, the guy next to me um, killing it this month on the guy on my left and the guy on my right getting demolished. So this guy's making a ton of money. That guy's getting crushed. And then the next month, the roles would reverse, <laughs> and suddenly the guy who's making a ton of money is is just getting you know demolished, and the guy who had a bad month is suddenly doing better. And it wasn't that they changed their process. It wasn't that they discovered a new you know trading indicator. It, it turned out to be something internal that they were doing differently, either how they were responding to input, and, and it just sent me down a rabbit hole of research. And the first book I found was by a Cornell professor named Thomas Gilovich called How We Know What Isn't So, arguably the first <laughs> book on behavioral finance. And, and let me point out, in the 90s, the cool kids ha- hadn't discovered behavioral economics yet. Um, Danny Kahneman and his then-deceased partner, uh, Amos Tversky, would, would be honored with a Nobel Prize, I think it was O2 in psychology for their work on behavioral finance, which is really just a study of how people make decisions under less than ideal conditions. How do you deal with uncertainty and information that may or may not be um, fully correct or fully fleshed out or whatever? And that kind of led me down a rabbit hole where, oh, now I understand this guy is really good at figuring out an ambiguous set of circumstances. This guy is really disciplined and he knows how not to let his emotions get in the way. And slowly you start to create a list of skills and personality attributes that lead a person to be a better or worse trader. And and it's not just trading, it's investing the same sort of Behavioral errors in decision making happen for long term investors as well. So when you know that, can you like you know the traders on either side of you? If you know one guy's good at this and bad at that, could you pinpoint that and change them, or that's just it's just the nature of someone that's that's how you determine whether they're a good trader or not? Or so uh, that's a really interesting question. I would say there are people who inherently know some of these things, but. That's the exception. Most of the better traders I've interacted with over the course of my career have figured this out over time. And it's sort of like a ball player that adds a new move, adds a new shot. Hey, suddenly this guy's hitting three pointers when he was a 10 foot range jump shooter. So people who are, who are, have a long career in trading continue to add more skills, continue to learn more about themselves. And eventually, you know, either you become a better trader or you blow up and you, you know, that's it. You're done as a, yeah, as a trader. Right. We, we know all about the blow ups. <laughs> no, but when you say they learn themselves, I'm just curious, back to your sports analogy, it, it, you know, like a, in a golf swing, a coach could say, took your shoulder and all of a sudden you're swinging better. Can they be coached or it's something you got to learn yourself? 
So I, I think if you want to be coached, you can be coached. I, I've watched there. By the way, there are a ton of consultants. There are behavioral coaches. There are trading coaches. Google it. You'll find a whole run of people. Yeah. There's an old joke about change, which I'll spare you the details of. But if you are open to learning about yourself and becoming a little more self-aware and enlightened, you can identify your own mistakes. Listen, if there's a hitch in your swing and you're, I'm not a golfer, but you're constantly slicing the ball uh, off to the right and you don't want to listen to a coach, well, then good luck. You're going to be slicing <laughs> forever. Someone yep. who wants to get better and is willing to listen to somebody who's got a good track record of helping other people, well, I don't see why that person can't learn to incorporate a little bit of self-awareness. Uh, that's the fascinating thing is as much as traders have a reputation for being brusque and hard-edged and, and difficult, uh, you need a touch of zen. You need a touch of self-awareness and enlightenment and, in order and to maybe improve. A, and a little bit of humility, too, oh, um, for sure. I would think. Right? Listen, I mean, what's more, what's more um, you know, humbling than, than going up against Mr. Market? You, you're constantly <laughs> going to be... Yeah. Explain, you know, if you hit 350, you're on the all-star team in baseball, not to just spend the whole morning doing uh, sports analogies. <laughs> the assumption that you're not going to be wrong and frequently wrong in, as a trader, that it's just not how it works. The best traders are the ones who immediately or as quickly as possible recognize, hey, this trade is not working out as I expected. Something is going wrong. And they admit error and and learn from it and go on. And if you look at Ray Dalio's principles, the core philosophy that built Bridgewater was, I'm going to make a mistake. And rather than hide it, I'm going to see what I can learn from that mistake. How can I incorporate what I learned from reviewing that that particular trade or or transaction? And then how do I make my process better based on what I've learned from from that experience. There's no other way around it. Yeah, uh, hearing you talk, Barry, it reminds me of a previous podcast we did with um, one of our guests who wrote a book on um, poker um, and the relationship between poker and trading and sort of the conclusion. Oh, Aaron that, Brown, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, Aaron. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, the premise is that uh, the, the ability to understand um, not just how one might react to a given set of facts, but to anticipate how other people are likely to react to a given set of facts and then um, sort of, uh, you know, guide, guide yourself um, based on that information seems to be, his conclusion is, much more important to success as a trader than certainly to um, any particular financial education. Yeah, absolutely. I recall having a conversation in late 06 with uh, Peter Bookfar, somebody I'm friendly with, about we, we literally had just been on CNBC talking about what was going on in the housing market and how it's going to spill over, potentially spill over to the um, equity market and why, you know, I, I had said, hey, under past circumstances where you have housing potentially drop by 30%, stock markets get cut in half. And, and the two of us were literally laughed at by the anchors um, maybe a year before the market had made its peak in October 2007. And I I wasn't even bearish at the time. I said, listen, I'm not suggesting the trend is um, downward. This market still has more steam. But if this ends or when this ends and if housing falls, you know, there's a ton of risk in the equity markets. And no one wanted to talk about that. So it's not just when the crowd 
figures out it's wrong. It, it, it's like how far off in the distance is it going to be? Because the crowd is a very self-reinforcing mechanism, and that trend can persist far longer than, than you expect. The, the rationality goes on and on until suddenly, you know, it's Wiley Coyote off the edge of the cliff. He's fine until he looks down and notices he's no longer on, <laughs> yeah, on firm right. ground. And, you know, crowd psychology is very much like that. Yeah. Well, that's actually a perfect segue to uh, the next question on, on the, your your book, Bailout Nation. Which, well done, John. Uh, that was a good thank seg- you. Yeah. Perfect segue. Well um, <laughs> He's a pro. Barry. Which you uh, yes, smooth as glass. Which you published <laughs> in um, 2009, right after the uh, the financial crisis. I'm particularly interested in all of this because I'm 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 interested in analyses of the financial crisis too. I went back to the SEC to work on Dodd Frank implementation in 2010 after all of this happened, and so I'm. Um, kind of have uh, my, my own um, thoughts about this. One of the things that I, I'm curious to get your thoughts are the concept of, of too big to fail. And, the, and, I, and I gather, I haven't read your book now, but now I'm sure I will because I've gotten interested in it. But part of the premise here is that the uh, you know, regulators um, and others laid the framework through easy money and um, various other uh, regulatory changes which I think I agree is pretty well established, but but aren't you still left with my conclusion when I read all of the requirements around um, de- designed to uh, shore up the system against these failures and creating these you know SIFI designations, um, systemically important financial right. institutions, and all of this. My conclusion was if these organizations were not too big to fail beforehand, they sure as hell are now. I mean, I, I feel like it is even less credible to suggest now that with these, uh, I, you know, these, the, these measures were supposed to make it less likely that one of these huge global institutions would go down. But it's not going to, like, reduce the impulse to keep them from going down during the next crisis, correct? I mean, is there, so, is there so any my- way to... My big takeaway researching and writing the book was we all have a tendency to take very complex, sophisticated issues and try and reduce them to very simple black or white answers. And, you know, the world is more complicated than that. The economy is more complex than that. I think I I identified, you know, 35 people and institutions and seven under seven broad um, topics that all led to a perfect storm that led to the financial crisis, um, starting with just decades of deregulation. Um, lots of folks said, well, of course, these companies aren't going to blow themselves up. They have too much uh, of a reputation problem. If they do that, forgetting about the principal agency problem and when you're paying people these giant bonuses if they succeed, but there's no downside because it's shareholders' money. Uh, If they fail, you just create a warped set of incentives. Uh, That plus the first time the Fed took rates down to, you know, 1% and kept in there for a long time. There there were dozens of things that happened. You know, my my favorite... um, I have all these war stories from that era, but uh, one of the things that's fascinating is if you are running a foundation or an endowment or any sort of tax-qualified special office like that, you have to give away 5% of your principal every year to, to avoid taxes. And 
perfectly legitimate. That's how charitable foundations work. But when bond yields go from 6 7% for tax-free, tre- uh, uh, risk-free treasuries down to 2 2.5%, 3%, suddenly these guys are concerned that they're not going to hit their target, especially if the equity side of the market is in a downturn. And so they all went out reaching for yields. And so that's like this very simple explanation why all these otherwise rational people bought all this garbage securitized subprime mortgages because mm-hmm. they had to hit a 5% bogey. So lots of little things like that all, all add up to, you know, a real, a real problem. And then you get very invested in your own, uh, your own assumptions and your own um, ways of valuing these things. I still remember when I was at the, at the SEC um, uh, years ago, going to a, I won't mention the trading firm, but it was, it was before the financial crisis, but it was when a particular trading house um, had a pretty significant uh, loss in mortgage-related um, instruments. And so I was a group of people that went up to talk to them directly, find out sort of how it happened. I remember that the, remember very clearly the head trader basically delivering the message, we weren't wrong. The market was wrong. <laughs> the market just screwed up the valuation. And, you know, we, we had to take the loss before people could see the error <laughs> of, of their... That guy did not study behavioral economics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Obviously. Markets can yeah. stay irrational longer yeah. than you can say sol- stay solvent. I mean, that's been the expectation for forever. And keep in mind, at, on the trading desk, early is the same as wrong. Late is the same as wrong. It's price and time in addition to a bunch of other factors. If you get the time wrong, well, big deal. You, you know, you you're, you can't say, hey, I bought this stock. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, and then I sold it and it took off. Well, then you had the timing wrong. The early is just no different than wrong. And again, that's why markets are as, as humbling as they are. You have to get so many things just right. And there's a fine line between having the courage of your conviction to just wait a little longer to everybody else figures out uh, what's going on versus you're stubborn and wrong and refusing to admit it. That That's a really paper-thin line. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So, I mean, not that it's the same thing, but fast forward 14 years to early 2023, we had our own sort of bailout situation happened, the Fed, Signature Bank, and Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, how are you working with your clients to make sure they don't make rash or fear-based decisions when these type of crises happen? You know, uh, my favorite line about that is simply, uh, if you're on a plane and in the seat back in front of you is the instructions uh, as to what to do in an emergency, uh, where the exits are, if you wait till a wing falls off the plane to read that at 30,000 feet, you're, you're probably <laughs> a little late. The time to read that is before takeoff. And so you end up uh, with the same situation. The time to have that conversation with clients isn't in the middle of a 20% drawdown. It has to be, listen, markets go up and down. We were fortunate. We launched the firm in 2013. We're coming up on September is 10 years so we've had the wind at our back most of the time, but I kind of, you know, made my reputation in 08, 09, warning about it on the way down. And then, hey, anytime the U.S. markets are cut in half, not the worst time in the world to get back in. I got a little lucky on the timing towards the bottom, but it's being able to say to people, you have to be aware stocks go up and down. This is what markets do. You get paid 
to ride out the drawdowns. If this didn't happen, markets wouldn't yield 9% over long periods of time. You would get risk-free treasuries, which up until recently weren't even yielding 3%. So you get paid for the volatility. You get paid for the stomach-churning action. And if you go into this knowing that this is what's going to happen. And oh, and by the way, here's the history of bear markets before you put a dollar into the equity market. Here's how many times you should expect it to be down 5%, down 10%, down 20%. Here's how many 30% pullbacks we've had. Over the long haul, markets have always recovered in the US and everybody loves to say, what about Japan? Well, Japan is the exception that proves the rule. The, The Japanese bubble was 4x what the NASDAQ bubble was in the late 90s, of course, it took a lot longer to recover from Right, that. and if you don't have that personal experience, it's obviously um, harder to kind of make the point. There are an awful lot of people on trading desks today, um, certainly, um, like young, young people who, for whom the financial crisis is kind of a case study in a finance course, right? Um, but it, it still feels kind of abstract. I, I love the Howard Marks quote, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And, and it's really true. <laughs> you know, you, you, when you live through those sort of periods and your portfolio gets shellacked, uh, you, you develop a little experience. I, I did a blog post a couple of months ago during one of the more recent pullbacks. And, and the th- basic theme was the pullbacks that, that matter the most affect you the least and the pullbacks that are least meaningful affect you the most. And what I mean by that is early in your career when you don't have that experience and you go through a drawdown, the market pulls back 20, 25, 30%. Your 401k is tiny. You probably don't have a lot of exposure to the market, uh, but it's just ground shaking and it, it rocks your world. And then a couple of decades go by and now you have a nice little 401k. Maybe you have an investment portfolio. And then you go through a 2020 where you're down 34% in two months hey, I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. This is temporary. In fact, it's a buying opportunity. And the one where there's the biggest dollar drawdown, uh, you just kind of say, yeah, yeah, here we go again. And you roll with it. It's kind of a, a funny way of looking at the world. Considering the first major crash I went through was you know, 2000, NASDAQ falls 81%. I, I don't even think I had a 401k 25 years ago. It was just... So that, like, oh, my God, this is world-shaking. And in reality, personally, it was meaningless. Yeah, it's interesting. It's another part of the concept that um, it's not so much what you know, but the emotional component and temperament of uh, how you react, particularly under stress. It's a theme, how you make decisions when you are, your limbic system is, you know, acting up. And look, you... We evolutionary psychology tells us we have a fight or flight response for a reason. Get the heart rate up, get the respiratory system going, get get the adrenaline pumping, get ready for battle or get ready to flee when you're confronted with one of these stressful situations. And you know what? When you're saving for 10 or 20 years and suddenly 20% of it disappears, however temporary that might be, that's a stress-inducing situation. And if you're not aware of it in advance, if you don't anticipate it, um, you don't know how to deal with it. One of my favorite things about the guys I was on the desk with, the trading desk, a lot of guys came out of the military, uh, SEALs, Army Rangers, Marine combat, jungle jungle combat instructors. And they would tell stories about before a mission, 
how they would prep. And the prep was not just visualizing how the mission goes when it goes swimmingly. All right, what happens when you take off and the helicopter suddenly runs into a problem? What happens when you land and, and you you're lose half your ammo? What happens when the gun jams? How do you deal mm-hmm. with this if... And they would have to think about every possible thing that could go wrong and what their response would be. And they were just so well-trained that... It became second nature. There's no panic. There's no emotion. It was just very businesslike. If this happens, I'm going to do this. If that happens, I'm going to do that. And not a surprise, that sort of training worked really well on a, on a trading desk where shit went wrong all the time. <laughs> yeah. And you have to be prepared. You have to know, you know, uh, get in, get out. You always have to know what your exits are. And if the exit is blocked, what plan B and plan C is. It occurs to me that there's ample reason for finance schools to be teaching these kinds of things. Uh, I think they should have courses around it. I don't know. Maybe they do. but um, Well, behavioral finance seems to have found its way into a lot of MBA programs, Mm -hmm. which really wasn't the case 20, maybe even 10 years ago. It was few and far between, you know, in in the early 2000s for sure. Right. Right. But it's also one thing to objectively uh, try to analyze how other people react in different situations than to sort of train that on yourself and to, to really have a, uh, you know, s- scrupulously understand how you may react in different situations and, and, and try to create awareness of that. Physician, heal thyself. Yeah. We're getting very in touch with. I am getting very, very yes. And you've only talked about being in the SEC twice, so (laughs) let's pivot a little bit to the topic of inflation because it's a bit of a hot topic these days. And you've written a lot about it on your blog, The Big Picture. And I think this may be one of the reasons you're categorized as one of the most dangerous. uh, (laughs) That's uh, what's good. Yeah, you're a self-described contrarian and dangerous man on the topic, but um, (laughs) you know, a lot of your beliefs go against the status quo. Can you share what is more, you know? what you believe pundits or even experts are getting wrong about inflation. All right. So you ha- again, back to the complexity, and it's never just one thing. So, so first, a lot of the senior economists came of age in the 1970s. That was their defining era. And so not surprisingly, they care about things like inflation expectations, which I think 99% of all surveys are just worthless. I'm, I'm not willing to say 100%. Of course, maybe there's one out there that's useful, but when you ask, we do surveys in the office, know your customer is one of the rules, and when you ask people, what's your risk tolerance, how, how uh, risk-embracing or averse are you, the answer has nothing whatsoever to do with what their risk tolerance is. The answer is always, <laughs> what did the market do over the past three months? If it's gone up, hey, a little FOMO, oh, I'm, I'm very tolerant of risk, I want more equities, and if the market's down... I'm very conservative, and and you could just track it over time. Over, you know, we have two thousand households we work with uh, in the office. It's really obvious when you ask that question, and so you have to find a way to trick people into telling you how, how they really think. So, uh, inflation expectations. The Federal Reserve does a survey. Where will inflation be in five years? And the correct answer to that question from any man in the street or anybody who gets a phone call at home from Federal Reserve researchers is, how the fuck do I know? I have no idea what's going to happen in six months. <laughs> That's Tell exactly me, what my who, answer would be. <laughs> who knows what inflation is going to be in five yeah. years? It's so yeah. dumb. Or in a year. In fact, when you look at the chart, go to Fred, pull up the inflation expectation survey. At the bottom, in around 
um, the beginning of, of 2021, inflation expectations were very low. And go fast forward to June 2022, just as inflation peaked and was about to plummet. Uh, inflation expectations were very high. It's just a perfect example of you're asking where is inflation going to be in five years, but the answer you're getting is here's where inflation has been over the past three months. So that's a little bit of a contrarian perspective. I personally have been a critic of um, owner's equivalent rent. When you look at CPI overseas and a lot of other countries, they don't look at at, uh, home rental prices uh, because the assumption is that if you most of the house mortgages out there are variable, U.S. thirty-year fixed is unusual in the in the world economy. So they figure high rates are going to cause people's home prices to go up, and low rates will cause them to go down. And they understand that. In the U.S., we have this very unusual situation. We overbuilt houses into the financial crisis. That peaked in 05 in, in price and 06 in volume. And then the next decade plus, we wildly underbuilt houses, uh, probably depending on whose numbers you want to use, two, three, four million uh, homes, whether it's the National Association of Realtors or the Home Builders Association. Everybody has an opinion. It's all, oh, we underbuilt millions. Even as the population went from 295 million to 330 million. So not only do you have a shortfall of houses, they all pivot towards multifamily and towards apartment buildings. But suddenly during the pandemic, lots of folks living in apartments in cities buy a second house. There's normally a chain of, of custody when you go through the real estate process. Starter homes buy from people who move to a larger home because they have another kid on the way. They're buying from someone who moves to a bigger home and on and on. If someone goes out and just buys a whole bunch of houses and doesn't put a house up for sale, you take that plus the underbuilding for a decade, plus suddenly a ton of fiscal stimulus and uh, and you raise rates, 61% of homeowners with a mortgage have a rate that's 4% or less. If you want to move, you're going to be paying 7.5%. Yep. So people are locked into place by these. Now, by the way, this is why I said a lot of these things might have been contrary at one point. Now it's kind of become accepted knowledge. But, you know, when you you see this coming, so I, I think I wrote a piece in 21, how everybody miscalculated housing demand. And it shows that exact chart of new home starts and how it just fell off uh, and completions and how it just fell off a cliff and stayed low for the better part of a decade. So here's the really contrarian part of that whole dialogue. If the Fed wants services side of inflation, we know the good side of inflation has already come down. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything from lumber to copper to used watches to cars to um, go down the list. Energy, food prices have come down. Energy prices are now ticking back up. We're recording this. We're about $78, $79 a, a barrel on oil. It had fallen into the 60s despite the war. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but what happens when the Fed raises rates, not only do they take all that supply of houses off the market, because people are locked in with that golden um, handcuff of a 3.75% mortgage, but now you're taking people who might otherwise be home buyers and sending them into the rental market. And the rental market is a big factor in owner's equivalence rent. So the Fed, by taking rates higher, 
is actually causing more inflation. This sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. If you want lower inflation at this point, after all the goods prices have already come down and services prices are just starting to roll over, the biggest component of services uh, CPI is, is rent. And rent is up because you can't find a whole lot of houses for sale. So if if mortgage rates came down to something more moderate, five and a half, six percent, there'd be a lot more houses for sale that would alleviate pressure on the rental market. We're already at 3% CPI. I don't know what year over year, I don't know what else they're waiting for. They should just declare victory and go mm-hmm. home. You know, mm-hmm. take the rest of the year off. Nice, nice job, guys. Mission accomplished, and and you're done. Um, they're hell-bent on— That doesn't seem to be where their head is. No. It's, yeah, uh, well, that's yeah. because, you know, you have folks like uh, Jerome Powell, came of age in the 70s, Lawrence Summer. Thank goodness he's not Fed chair. He said, you know, in order to get uh, rates down to 3%, 5 million people need to lose their jobs, and unemployment has to go up to— He didn't say 5 million people. You need unemployment at 6 or 7% which translates to uh, about 5 million people from where it is now, 3%. As it turns out, the guys who, and it's mostly guys, who built their economic models in the 1970s, they're wed to an era of persistent inflation. Uh, that That's why they love inflation expectations, because back then, when someone said inflation's going to stick around for three, four, five years, they were right. 30 years later, you have all sorts of globalization, new technology, productivity, improvements, automation. It's a deflationary world with the occasional spasm of inflation. We saw that spasm in the mid-2000s, and we're seeing it now. Hey, a lot of this is tied to the pandemic reopening. And once we get past the rest of it, you know, it'll be transitory. P.S. The Fed was right when they said inflation was transitory. Transitory just took longer than anyone expected. Maybe maybe that's a little bit contrary also. Yeah. Well, but contrary in a good way. Um, <laughs> like it. Yeah. So let's uh, – we have a question for you. Uh, John, John's question will be uh, how we monetize it, of course. But your, your podcast <laughs> <laughs> just surpassed 500 episodes. Um, long-winded question, but what have you learned from doing the show? Have you had a favorite guests over the years, moments, or something about your listenership that surprised you? And then um, how do we monetize this thing again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've had a lot of favorite guests. Um, the ones that really stand out are the upside surprises where, where people would say, why do you want to speak to that guy? What does that have to do with investing? So when um, I had Ken Feinberg on, the special master for a number of things, but most famously the 9-11 settlement as well as the you know Gulf oh, yeah. of Mexico spill and and, you know, not a dry eye in the house by the time this guy is done. It's just amazing uh, the sort of American hero this guy is to basically take the most thankless job in in the world and dole out that money. Um, I just vividly recall him having to – so Congress gave them certain parameters and here you here's this pile of money and figure it out based on the – um, traditional economic analysis of, of future expected earnings. And so he has to explain to the widow of the person, of the firefighter who was killed 
because the bond trader who jumped out of the 103rd floor window of the Trade Center and landed on that firefighter, why this guy is only getting $2 million, his family is getting $2 million, but the bond trader's family is getting $8 million because he was – forward earnings expectation was so much higher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you really have to understand that you're doing um, very, very special work to be able to deal with all the people. So so that's just like an example of somebody who, you know, and he just told story after story like that. Yeah, you don't you, think of that at all, but that, shocking, yeah, that's... Shocking, shocking. Yeah. And wow. by the way, all the people who said, this isn't finance related, what are you doing? And afterwards it was just like, all right, we're, we're going to shut up now. It, it was just <laughs> You it can was pick just your amazing. guests, Barry. <laughs> but, but, here's, but here's the thing. In terms of what I learned from um, guests... And it comes up over and over and over again, the, the two things that just stand out in, in my mind so much. The first is just dumb chance. Yeah, you got to table stakes. Is you, you have to be hardworking and smart and you have to apply yourself. That, that's just table stakes to, to sit down. A little bit of luck, uh, a little bit of serendipity at the right time, right place, and makes all the difference. For every person you see who is successful, there's somebody else just as smart, just as hardworking, just as accomplished, but just was not quite in the right place and missed that that opportunity. It's, it's amazing. That is the first thing, serendipity. And, you know, uh, you could tell when someone's blowing smoke up your ass and it's just that false humility. Mm-hmm. I've heard it too mm-hmm. many times for it, for it to be fake. And, and then the flip side of that is just how fragile and delicate success is. Right. And uh, a company that is growing rapidly and, you know, acquiring customers and seeing a giant spike in revenue and profitability, that's a really rare thing. It's a really unusual thing. We don't appreciate it. And, you know, look at what's going on now with Twitter in, in the midst of uh, uh, all nothing but unforced errors. Uh, mm. There, there are times when when people just don't realize what makes a company or a product valuable, and so they they waste it. And, and P.S. Go back fifty or hundred years. Look at how many companies are in that were in the Dow Jones Industrial Average then are not. And it's not just the steam and leather belt companies, which is how you moved power from whatever you were burning to whatever physical, uh, mechanical motion you needed, just everything constantly changes. The world changes. And so um, I, I love when when you we see clients bring us, hey, I want to invest in this play or this movie. Uh, why? Well, look how <laughs> successful <laughs> Hamilton is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now tell me about the other two million um, <laughs> plays that didn't. That, make it, that yeah. didn't. Yeah. You know, it's the restaurant that, you know, finally after the 10th attempt, there's a restaurant on the corner that becomes successful. Everybody wants to be a restaurateur. I don't know if you've seen The Bear on Hulu. I expect to see a ton of new restaurant um, business plans showing up in the office. And it's Mm -hmm. just survivorship bias covers everything. You see the winners. You don't see all the losers because they're gone. They're invisible. And so we think it's easier to succeed than it really is. I think that's very perspicacious. Uh, John loves to try and use fence words yeah, when, that, he, that when Ronan he, doesn't know. That's that so. word of day calendar is paying off. 
yeah, yeah, that, that must be where it is. I got to look in your drawer. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and in terms of monetizing, I think you already gave us the answer that we have to connect with Bloomberg, but we can't. We obviously will not. Uh, uh, so Bloomberg, if you're listening, we will not uh, replace you, uh, Barry. We'll have to find an, an angle that's enough different that we can. Uh, no, but we're, we're we're big believers in the sentiment there because people say you, you make your own luck. You, you do by grit, but you got to be very very lucky as well. Like I said, you're just because you do X number of hours a day doesn't mean you're going to be guaranteed successful. But a lot of people like to say that I take they take credit for it. It's like sometimes my wife will say to me, "You seem." guilty for your success. I'm not. I just know I'm fucking incredibly lucky. I mean, it's, I can't begin to tell you how many times I, I've not only heard that on the air, but afterwards, like people say, hey, listen, I don't want to say this on the air, but you know, we have clients listening, but we did A, B, and C, and we just, you could have done it a month earlier or a month later, and it wouldn't have worked out, but we just yep. happen to be, and I, not a day goes by that we're not grateful for for how fortunate we are. I've heard that endlessly, endlessly. Uh, it, table stakes is the right word. You have to have hard work, stick to itiveness, intelligence, and that just you know that just gets you into the game. It doesn't mean you're going to win. Yep, one hundred percent. Let's go to a, a fun question. So you're a car guy. I love cars, so I'm curious what you're going to answer this. What's the first car you own, and what are you driving these days? So the first car I owned was a 1967 Chrysler 300 that I spent $100 buying from my uncle. (laughs) I had it for a month and a half before my mom, who was out of gas in her car, said, let me just borrow yours and (laughs) proceeded to smash it it up. Total did. She called me. I just want you to know I'm okay. I'm like, how's the car? I really don't care how you ask the car. I'm supposed to ask how you're okay. Right. The fact that you could dial me, I know you're. uh, So, uh, and that was replaced with a 300. 100,000 mile Volkswagen bug. Um, mm-hmm. I'm driving a bunch of cars now. The the two project cars I've been working on, I wanted to take an old sort of 1980s era sports car and convert it to an EV. And so I went out and bought a 1988 wow. Porsche 911 Cabrio nice. that the previous owner had raced and it was in kind of ratty condition. And I thought no one would care if I convert this. And by dumb luck, it turned out to be kind of a rare model that once we cleaned it up, it's like, all right, now I can't convert this. So I I literally just picked it up today. The last two things I had to do was the motors for the side view mirrors went in. And suddenly, even after the whatever I put into it, the car's worth about double what I paid. Do you do any of this tinkering yourself? I do some tinkering, but like... I had the brake lines replaced. I'm not going to do that. I did a lot of interior cleanup. We had it. I had the interior steam cleaned. Um, stuff like that I could do. I could change a tire. I could change brake pads. I could do things like that when I have time. The other car. So when this I realized was an M491 for you Porsche aficionados out there. Um, when I realized I can't, I have to leave this one numbers matching original. I went out and found a 300,000-mile Franken car, a 1987 911 coupe that I picked up for, you know, nothing. And the previous owner had done a really nice job maintaining it. That's another car. Replace the brakes, replace the tires, um, do a, a, an exterior paint treatment, which I don't do. And um, I put some stripes on. That car goes down to Austin, Texas next month to have a have the engine, transmission, exhaust, and gas 
um, tank removed and a new electric motor control system charger batteries put in. So the 911s were notoriously rear biased. So this is going to go from a 3565 to a 50, just about 50-50. And the 1987 stock engine produced 200 horsepower. The electric motor will be 400 horsepower, 500 pound-feet of torque. This is going to be a little rocket ship when I get it back. I have a similar story. I bought a... On eBay Motors, believe it or not, at the time anyway, it seemed like whack. It was 2007, I bought a 911, and it was a 2000 911, and then the the Porsche people know it's a 996, Yep, which is the first model when Porsche went from air cooling to a cooling system. I had that car right. for that was nine 98 years. ninety eight or ninety nine when they. It 96. was a two thousand. It's a nine nine six. But I mean, they the did nine nine six was was I think the ninety eight was the yeah. last year of the air cooled. So I sold the car in twenty sixteen. Uh, for $3,000 less than, and I had put something like 100000 on the car. It was nuts. I've Normally right. you drive a Porsche off the parking lot and it's worth two-thirds of what it was like an hour ago. Well, we need to get off this line of uh, because uh, Nick, my husband, wants me to buy a Porsche and I keep telling him um, Ronan doesn't pay me enough uh, to be able to do that, so we're going to have to. But you do have uh, a lot in common with uh, Ronan, both in terms of, of cars and He's surprisingly very good with his hands, um, and uh, he likes to work on various wood- woodworking and other things. Good for your brain to do non-work yeah, he's stuff. He's not the talent <laughs> in other ways, but he's very, very good with his hands. I, I'm, you know what? I, I spend more time working on the Jeep because if I screw it up, I don't care. It's a Jeep. So I replaced a bunch of the lights, and along the interior, I put a bunch of—, of uh, things around the the roll cage and around handles, and I put the Nerf bars on the side. And I mean, you're actually working with tools and moving things around. But if you make a mistake, all right, something falls off. Who ca- a light falls out? Who cares? When it comes to things like the brakes, I, I don't trust myself enough. Yeah. When when I had the VW Bug, I I could basically that's a hamster on a on a treadmill. You could pretty much do <laughs> anything. You, you yourself. could fix those cars back in the day. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, a little a little uh, bubble gum and some cardboard. You you yeah. could do you can make anything. Now between the computer control and just the cars are so powerful. I I don't I don't mess with with at least the brakes and and the drivetrain. I may need to have you come over to my house because my son just uh, bought online a bumper for his Jeep, and it sounded. I thought he was getting They're a easy, grill cover. If it's the right yeah. year, it's yeah. easy to fix. It's easy to swap out. You just have to get behind there with a ratchet wrench and take the original bumper off. Yeah, it scared the hell out of me. I'm like Jack, you're going 80 miles down the highway if you don't put that on right. There's ramifications, my man. Wow. Bad, bad news. Eighty miles impressive. down the highway, the bumper ain't gonna help you at that point. You're That's you're true. a bag of soup. Just run. Yeah. I always yeah. tell that to people. <laughs> you are a bag of soup, and in a car accident, hey, you know the airbags will help, but not at a hundred. No, no chance. So we're gonna end this on a, uh, and I hope you were prepped on this ending question because it's a different, a different, different note. We normally ask a boring, "What's your favorite Wall Street movie and why?" Yeah, but which is for you, Barry, tedious. you get this your is, own special question. This is All the right. first time we've ever asked this. So, um, oh, if you could turn any everyday object into a form of currency, what object would you choose and why? <laughs> that's a really odd question. Yeah, and, that's what know, I thought. <laughs> So, so you guys know about the giant stone wheels at that uh, uh, island in the Pacific 
that the villagers use. They're so big you can't move them. Yeah, and it's just so. So I I love the concept of that. That currency is a shared delusion. It doesn't matter what the object is. It's the this comes back to the behavioral psychology. As long as society agrees this has value, it has value. What whatever the uh, McGinty is, to quote Hitchcock, the McGinty is always the item that everybody is after, no matter what it is, and it drives the the plot of the film. So whether it's dollars or or Bitcoin or or gold or whatever, it's irrelevant. What matters is the shared collective delusion that I'll give you these little green pieces of paper and you're going to be something, uh, some good or service that I value. So it doesn't matter. It could, as long as it, you can't, as long as you can't counterfeit them too easily, it's yeah. it's irrelevant what the what the item is. And and I suppose the converse to that is that once a large number of people collectively lose faith in that whole thing, um, at the same time, then it you know it sort of is like the it's like the wily coyote like getting out over the the you know suddenly there's nothing underneath it. It's not a coincidence that Bitcoin really took off post financial crisis when people began to have doubts about. Why were the banks bailed out and not us? Why is this whole system geared for the wealthy? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was opportunistic, but that's what happens during those periods of time when look at what happens in in other nations where you have a thousand percent inflation. Uh, Suddenly people default back to gold, but they never ask, why is gold valuable. Yeah, it's relatively rare, but there are lots of other things that are rare. Why are we choosing gold at, to back our, our currency instead of, of something else? Great answer. Good point. Well, Barry, he nailed it. He nailed it. <laughs> Look, we're approaching our 100th episode, so we, we appreciate you joining us. And if you've, if you've any pointers offline, please let us know. But we really do appreciate you joining us today. We could have talked for like another half an hour. Are we going to give him a gift? Well, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Barry, yeah, I don't know. Do, yeah. I don't know if you come on other podcasts if people give you presents, but we but we have a... We have a very lovely pair of boxes and line socks mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're our guests love to use. They're very yeah. they're lovely. Yes, absolutely. They are actually good quality. They're good quality. Yeah. Because uh, when I get shitty socks from other people, I tell them that they're shitty. But you um, can wear ours. Yeah. He, it, that's that's what he does. <laughs> Looking it forward. Like it is. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. We re- we really appreciate it. Do you want to end with a bad Irish accent, John? God bless you all, and thank you, Barry. Come back again soon. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Are you a diehard boxer or liner, or just a fair weather fan? No judgments. I know how annoying JR's Irish accent can be. Either way, we want to hear from you on our new Boxes and Lines listener survey to find out what you think about the show, give input on future episodes, guests, and more. We'll take it back to our survey counter thingy machine and consider all of your inputs as we plan our 2024 season. You can find the survey at iex.getfeedback.com slash boxesandlines. And don't worry, there's something in it for you. That's my drum roll. JR could probably do it better. You get a pair of socks. That's right. Take the survey. We'll send you a pair of our coveted box and line socks while supplies last in a new limited edition print. How's that for listener appreciation? So take the survey. Tell us what you think. And thanks for listening. Again, that's iex.getfeedback.com slash boxes and lines over and out. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace. With support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. 
Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.